Hello, and welcome to the Coastal Church Audio Podcast. In this weekly podcast, you'll be inspired and equipped with the power of God's Word to live an overcoming life. In this week's teaching, we are going to explore five different qualities that contribute to successful leadership. And now, for this week's message. Welcome to you this morning, and you do look absolutely amazing today. It's a joy to be in God's house. This is a place where we get to come and learn and grow in God. And the greatest teacher that I have ever known is here today, and that's the Holy Spirit. And he's going to teach us today. Our role is to come and to hear. And as we listen, a good thing to do is close all the other files. Because sometimes we've got all these different files open. Kind of like your smartphone, you can have all those different apps running. If you get too many things running on your computer or your smartphone, it actually slows it down and you don't, it doesn't work as well. It's kind of like that with us. Sometimes we have to just close up all the other files, our shopping file, our family file, our work file, and all these other files, holiday files. Say, I'm going to put my God file today and just hear what you have to say to me. Now, it may speak into our family. It might speak into our work, but we're just saying, God, I want to hear what you'd have to say for me today. And what he speaks to you might be really different than what he speaks to the person beside you that you just said looked absolutely amazing. And it might be different than what you think somebody needs to hear. But God has a way of speaking to us when we're here in church. It's just his design. When we come together, Holy Spirit will start speaking to us. So let's get ready to hear from him this morning. As we are preparing to do that, you should have a handout there when you came in, which is our notes. I'll give you some pointers as we go through the message this morning. Our entire month has been on the topic of trust. Trust me. We all say that, uh, whether we verbalize it or not, but we want to be trusted. This morning's topic is on trust and leadership. In order for leadership to work, it has to have the currency of trust in it. And more than ever before, trust is needed in leadership. It used to be leadership was much more vertical. Even 10, 20 years ago, you'd have a president or a manager. I'm the manager. I'm the leader. You have to do what I say. But today's world, a good book came out called The World is Flat. It's much more horizontal the way communication happens today. And more than ever, trust is needed in, in leadership and in relationships. And so we're going to talk about that today. Now, you could be saying, well, I'm, I don't know if I'm a leader. This might not be for me. We are all leaders because we all have influence. Leadership is influence. In your family, you are able to lead. In your community, you're able to lead. Maybe in your school. But we all have influence. We can all lead. And in order for leadership to work well, trust is a key to that. And we'll talk about that this morning. There's an example in the Bible we're going to use today. We're going to look at a guy by the name of Saul. Saul is not the best example of leadership. That's why we're using him today. The Bible will give you amazing examples of leaders like Moses, Joshua, David, Paul, Timothy, all great examples of leadership. And then there's some that are in there that are not so good. And Saul is one of those guys. I'm glad the Bible doesn't just give us these so-called, you know, perfect models of leadership and, and lives. It gives us some examples that weren't so good. And we're going to look at a guy by the name of Saul today and see that he didn't build trust in his leadership. And really, as a result, his leadership failed. And what could have been an amazing legacy for him was actually taken from him because of the way he led. So things we can learn from a guy by the name of Saul today. So if you have your Bibles, go with me to 1 Samuel. We're going to be primarily in the 13th chapter. But I'm going to start you way back in chapter 8 and just give you a quick highlight of what took place up till now in case you don't know the story. 
Up to the time that Saul came along, they were ruled by judges. Judges would rule the land. After they came out of Egypt, judges were set in place. And Samuel is the last judge in place. He's older, gray hair, got a couple boys. His boys aren't very good. And uh, he's passed on leadership to them, but they're not doing a very good job. The elders come up to Samuel and say, Samuel, you know what? We want a king. No more judges. We want a king. I kind of feel for Samuel because I think it was, would have been pretty tough. You've done a pretty good job. You put your life into it. He served God from the days he was a little boy when he was called in the temple. And now he's an old man. And his boys aren't really doing what they should be doing. Well, they're not doing what they should be doing. This is why the people came and said, we want to have a king. And uh, we don't want judges anymore. We want a king. We want to be like the other countries. All the other countries have kings. Why can't we have a king? We want a king. And so they're kind of whining and complaining. And they say, we want this king. Samuel says, well, I'm not sure. Do you really understand what you want? If you get a king, here's what kings do. Kings come along, they tax you, and they take the best of your herd. They take the best of your crops, and that's what they feed their people and their soldiers with. And then they enlist your boys, and your boys go to war. Your daughters will go to work in their courts, courtrooms, or the courts, and they'll be serving in in wherever the king wants them to serve, and you're going to lose your children and, and be taxed, and you sure you want this? They go, yes, we want a king. Give us a king. And so they're crying out for this king. And so God gives them a king, and Saul is chosen. Saul would have been on the front cover of GQ magazine. Saul, it says, was very, very handsome, and he was tall. He was head and shoulders above the rest. The Bible says he was the most handsome man in that time in Israel. So if they would have had a contest for the most handsome guy, Saul would have won that contest. Good looking, strong. He worked as a farmer and uh, he was this rugged, tall, handsome guy. But just because you're strong on the outside doesn't mean that you're strong on the inside. And great leadership is a reflection more of what's on the inside than what's on the outside. And this is where Saul fails. He actually fails the heart test because leadership rises or falls on what's on the inside of us. And that's how we are trusted or not trusted. There's a note there in your handout that I want to just give you this morning. It says, great leaders do not trust in the power of their position but in the power of trust. Again, trust is like a currency. It is so powerful, even more so in today's world with the advent of of our internet and the way communication happens. It's so powerful. You can't trust in your position. That means just because you are a president, a CEO, a manager, your business card says this or that, or if you have a corner office or an office with a tag, and you say, well, you have to trust me because I am such and such, that doesn't make for good leadership. Good leadership is related to much more the power of trust, how you build trust, and how that works for you. So we're going to talk about five things, five characteristics or essential qualities that build trust. Number one is clarity. So if you're taking notes, the word is clarity. And we find that in the story of Saul, he didn't do such a good job of that. He's chosen king, and when they have a service for him and and are declaring him as king, they they go looking for him, and they can't find him. He's actually hiding in the baggage of the stuff that they were traveling with, and he's, he's hiding. Now, if you go and you want this person to serve as a king or as a leader, and you can't find them, they go hiding, and it's like, 
Saul, Saul, wherever you are, Saul, come out. You're the king. Please, Saul, we're looking for you. We can't find you. Saul, oh, Saul, you're king. And then you go and you find him. He's cowered back amongst all these boxes. You go, oh, dear, this is our king. Mighty man of valor hiding in the boxes. And this was Saul. And uh, so he, he comes out and he's chosen to be king. And he, you know, it's the first king they've got. Samuel is teaching him and others what royalty does. It's all new to them. And he's instructing them along these lines. And during that time, they have an outpost on the other side of the Jordan River. And uh, out there, there's been this group of Ammonites. They were the enemies of Israel. And they had come up to this outpost and were oppressing them. And this, the people there said, you know what? Let's go make a deal with these guys so they don't oppress us. So they went to them. You pick up the story in chapter 11. They went to them. It's kind of an interesting story. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 11. It says that Nabesh, the Ammonite, came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nashash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. So basically they're saying to the enemy, you know what? We're kind of outnumbered. This is an outpost. And let's just make a deal and leave us alone. And so the guy comes back with a very interesting deal. I'm not sure you'd like this deal. Listen to the deal. And Nabesh the Ammonite answered them, on this condition, I will make a covenant with you. And they go, okay, well, what's the deal? That I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. He said, okay, you want a deal? I'll make you a deal. Here's the deal. I'm going to gouge out all your right eyes, and then we can get along. And their reaction is kind of like yours. Like, oh, really? And so that's what they say. Then the elders of Jabez said to him, uh, can you hold off on that for a few days, seven days? We want to send some messengers back to the territory of Israel. And then if there's no one to save us, uh, we'll, we'll come to you. In other words, they're saying, we really don't like that deal. Can you give us a few days? We just got to check if we can get some support here. And so Saul hears about this. And Saul is enraged. He goes, you've got to be kidding outrageous. This is inhumane that they want to gouge out our eyes that we would have a, an agreement, a peace agreement with them. There's no way. And he's so upset, he's plowing the field. He's got these oxen. He stops plowing, takes the oxen, slaughters the oxen, cuts them up, and he says, listen, everybody in the land, I got news for you. We're going to war, and if you don't come join me, I'm going to go do the same to your oxen. I'm going to kill your oxen. I'm going to cut them up. Now, that'll motivate you. That's, you know, that's what I call leadership by fear. Either you come serve me or I'm going to cut up your oxen. And so guess what? People said, all right, we, we, we better go. And so they all got together. There's about 300 and some thousand of them. And they went and fought against the Ammonites. And they, and they win the battle. And it, it's a great battle. I'm jumping ahead of myself. But Saul, just he makes some very... You know, clarity in leadership is very important, trusted leadership. At the end of chapter 13, this will surprise you. The only people that have a sword are Jonathan, his son, and Saul. And I just got thinking, you wiped out the Ammonites. Didn't you pick up any of the spoils? Like, didn't you pick up any of their swords? Why are they the only ones? The Philistines knew how to work metals. And others did, but out of that battle, he didn't keep any of the spoil to empower his people. It's just a lack of clarity on that decision. People trust leaders that have clarity, that know the vision, the purpose, 
and can overcome problems and obstacles and have clear thinking. And Saul, when you study his life, he didn't demonstrate that. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 11, if you jump over to there, the story progresses, and Saul's now been going a couple years, and uh, he's got about 3,000 men around him, those other soldiers that he recruited through fear. They've all gone their own way. And he's got these other men. And he, he sends his son, Jonathan. Jonathan's a young soldier. And he sends Jonathan to do a guerrilla attack against this, uh, the Philistines. And so he opens up a hornet's nest when he does that. They go out there. Now, Samuel was an amazing advisor. Before he sends Jonathan out there, he doesn't pray. He doesn't ask for Samuel's advice. He just sends his son out to do this thing. It's always good to get good wisdom and counsel before you make a move like that. And it's always good to pray before you make major decisions. Again, there's just not some clarity in what Saul's doing here. So they go out and they make this attack. And the Philistines, they're just ticked off. They're really ticked off. And they've, they just come out in number. And they're like, let's go wipe these people out. They get 30,000 chariots. 6,000 horsemen, and more people than you can count like, this, like sand on a seashore. It's a huge, huge mass of people that are coming against Israel. And I think Saul's going, oh, what did I just do? And so it says that he gets his trumpet, and he blows it in the land and says, hear, O Israel. And he's trying to get the army back together again. Now, his leadership up to this point really hasn't inspired a whole lot of trust. The sound is again, you know what? They're coming. We better do something about it. Again, he hasn't prayed. He didn't get any advice at all. And now the people come together, and when they see this army, we pick up the story. It's there in your notes, 1 Samuel 13, 11, and 12. Samuel said, oh, that's sorry. I'm jumping ahead. I need 1 Samuel chapter 11, I mean chapter 13, verse number 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, the people hid in caves, thickets, rocks, holes, and in pits. And some even crossed the Jordan River. So when the people saw this, they just, they ran, they scattered. Now, Saul's really got a problem. Because the army's coming, his army is scattered, they don't want anything to do with it. And so he goes to the front of the battle line. Samuel had told him, I'll be along within seven days. Don't do anything till I come. Because when he came as the prophet and the former judge and priest, he could come and pray and ask for God's blessing to be upon them as they went into this battle. And so Saul's there waiting. One day goes by, and he looks out there and sees this army. Two days goes by, three days goes by. And in, late in the sixth day, He can't wait any longer. Saul just says, you know what? Come on, just bring me something. I'll make the sacrifice, and and I'll do this thing. And he does something which he should have never, ever done. He walks into that office of the prophet. That was not his place to be. He should have ever gone in there. He should have waited. Samuel would arrive on time. But he walks into an office that he should have never been. That's kind of like you, if you're, you know, a manager and you walked into the president's office because you expected him to be there at a certain time and he didn't show up when you thought he should be there. So you went to his office and you signed some checks and, for the company and you just, you just took over his office for him. Your boss would come in and say, what have you done? 
I was on my way. What, what are you doing in my office? And that's basically what Samuel is saying to Saul. There in your notes, 1 Samuel 13, 11, 12, Samuel said, what on earth are you doing, Saul? Saul answers, well, when I saw that I was losing my army from under me and that you didn't come when you said you would, now, he was going to be there in seven days. It's just not when Saul would have liked to have him there. And, um, and that the Philistines were poised and mishmashed. I said, the Philistines are about to come on me at Gilgal, and I haven't yet come before God asking for help. So I took things into my own hands, and I, I sacrificed the burnt offerings. Not a smart thing to do, Saul. Not clarity. Not soundness of mind in that decision. And I don't know why he didn't do this. Why wouldn't you just say to one of your soldiers, one of your runners, can you please go and see where Samuel is and make sure he gets here on time? There's something going on in Saul's life here, and that's called arrogance. Trusted leaders operate in humility, not in arrogance. So number one was clarity. We see in his life that there was not clarity as a leader. Two is, if you're taking notes, competency. Leaders are trusted when they demonstrate that they have strength to take the lead. And as I just mentioned, he was operating in arrogance instead of humility. There's a great verse in the Bible that says that God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. Humility is strength that's harnessed, that's accountable. And he wasn't accountable. He didn't accountable, hold himself accountable to Samuel. And so he arrogantly went into his office. One of the verses I have in your notes, Proverbs 18, 12, haughtiness comes before disaster, but humility before honor. He had a disaster, and the Philistines end up invading. Haughtiness comes before disaster. Same thing in our lives. If we have a haughtiness and arrogance in our life, if you know somebody that's haughty or arrogant, pray for them, because unless they have a change of heart, what's ahead of them is disaster. And you can probably think of people that have operated that way. You watch your life long enough, and all of a sudden, yeah, disaster ends up. But if there's humility, with humility comes honor. Grace is given to us. In the book, The Trust Edge, the author says this, people have confidence, or we could say people have trust in those who stay fresh, relevant, and capable, or have competency. The humble and teachable person keeps learning new ways of doing things and stays current with ideas and trends. Then he said, arrogance and a being there done that attitude prevent you from growing and they compromise others' confidence in you. That's so true in leadership. If you have been there, done that, can't speak into my life, I know it all, people automatically disconnect and trust you less instead of more. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, look at how Jesus leads. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Why do we follow the leadership of Jesus? Undoubtedly, the best leader that there ever was and is, is our Lord Jesus Christ. We follow because he's gentle and he's humble. We can emulate. We can, we can copy that. We can, we can show that in our life as well. Okay, number three, if you're taking notes, is the word character. People trust leaders that demonstrate character. And a couple weeks ago, we had our smartphones out, and you guys were texting in different characteristics that would make somebody trustworthy. And the number one characteristic that you put up there was honesty. And that still is today the number one trait that makes a leader also trustworthy is this honesty. Last week, we talked about how to restore trust. 
honesty, and if you've broken trust, you need a lot of repeated acts of honesty to rebuild trust. If you miss those, by the way, get online, go to the podcast and pick them up, especially that one last week on broken trust, because we've all had trust broken. Is it possible to rebuild trust? Yes, it is, but there's certain things that you need to know about that we covered last week. Now, again, trusted leaders are not only strong on the outside, they're strong on the inside. And this is where Saul failed. Strong on the outside, but weak on the inside, where counter, where character is that inner strength. The notes tell us this. Character is the inward motivation to do what is right according to the highest standards of behavior in every situation. Again, it's something on the inside. Performance is a little bit easier to measure. If you're measuring, for example, if you're in sales and you have a quota, you can measure that and you're rewarded for it. If you're a teacher, how many students you're teaching. If you're a doctor, how many patients you saw. If you're a carpenter, how many how many walls you build, how many houses you build. You can measure that. But I have a question for you today. How do you measure character? How would you measure honesty? How do you measure transparency? How do you measure um, showing others, preferring others over yourself? How do, you, how do you measure the quality, the character of listening uh, before speaking? Not so easy to measure compared to some of those other things, but it is important to know that it can be measured over time. Measurements, we, we live in a world of measurements. Um, I grew up under the imperial system, and uh, today we have the metric system. I think the metric system makes so much more sense than that other system. Uh, it took me a while to convert over to it. If you're from the U.S. with us today, you use the imperial system. Uh, but I just found the, the metric system, you know, in, in increments of 10 and divisible by 10 was so much easier. And I often wonder, like, who came up with the inch anyhow? Like, what, the centimeter makes sense, but who came up with an inch? You know, who came up with a foot? Why is it called a foot? Who came up with a yard? Like, where did this stuff come from? Did somebody just make this up, or how did we get these measurements? Inch is based uh, from a guy by the name King Edgar. It was a distance from his thumb tip to the knuckle of the thumb. That was an inch, and that would be about an inch. And the, the foot was King Charlemagne. That was the size of his foot. Uh, King Henry gave us a yard. That was from his nose to the tip of his fingers. That was a yard. That's where they got the yard from. Got all these weird measurements. And then sometimes measurements got changed for the craziest of reasons. Uh, if you do a marathon, you know a marathon is exactly 26 miles and 385 yards. It didn't start off that way. It started off to be 25 miles. Well, that would make sense to me, but 26 miles, 385 yards. Why did that one mile, 385 yards, get tacked onto it? Well, 1908 London Olympics... Queen Alexandra wanted her grandchildren to see the start of the race. So the starting line was moved back one mile and 385 yards onto the front lawn of Windsor Castle so the kids could watch the start of the marathon. And since then, the marathon has been that distance exactly. So we know the measurement of it. Those things are easy to measure, but how do you measure character? It takes a little more time to do that, but it can be measured and seen. Let me give you an example. In 1992, Rodney King trial sparked riots in Los Angeles. There was looting. Buildings were burnt. If you remember that time or if you Google, you can see all kinds of pictures, streets burned. It was, it was a disaster. And when it was all over, people surveyed the land 
and they said, wait a minute, there are certain buildings that didn't get touched. And as I looked at them, all the buildings had one thing in common. And it might surprise you to know which buildings didn't get burnt, didn't get looted. It surprised me. The buildings that didn't get burned or looted were the McDonald's stores. Everybody left McDonald's alone. Now, other stores got looted. Other fast foods got looted. But McDonald's was left alone. <laughs> so they went to the community and said, why didn't you guys burn and loot McDonald's? And they thought, oh, that's easy. Because McDonald's cares about us. Their characteristics were coming through. Now, we might chuckle at that today. But guess who was giving into their literacy program into the community? McDonald's. Who was funding their sports teams? McDonald's. And where could everybody get a job when they needed a job? At Mickey D's. Anybody could get a job at Mickey D's. And so they said, don't you dare touch Mickey D's because my friend works there. My kids work there. Leave Mickey D's alone. And they were never touched. And so can you measure character? Yeah. Sometimes it just takes a little while. Our good friend, Bill Strickland in Pittsburgh, he's in the worst neighborhood of Pittsburgh. A couple blocks from his school is a public school where they have security cameras, security guards, metal detectors, spray-painted graffiti all over the place. And yet when you go to his school of arts and technology, there are no security cameras. There is no metal detectors. They have no graffiti. They have never been tagged. And over 20 years of serving the community, they have had not one single police incident in the roughest neighborhood. Why is that? Because everybody knows in the community, that's where you go when you need a hand up. That's where you go when you need to be cared for. They see the character of the leadership there. They trust them. And because of that, that place in the hood is protected. And so character doesn't show up right away. But people trust leaders that display good character. And Saul, unfortunately, he failed on this in a number of different ways. We see he was a very jealous man. He tried to kill David on a number of times later on. He was impatient. He didn't trust the Lord. Okay, our verse for this week is 1 Peter 3, 10 and 11. We always have a memory verse for the week. And if you're joining us in that, this is a verse that we have gone through almost every Sunday. And so it'll be an easy one to learn. It's 1 Peter 3, 10 and 11, where it reads, For the scriptures say, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days. Well, that should have all our attention. We want to enjoy life and have happy days. What do I do? Keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace. Work to maintain it. If you live by those characteristics, you know what? You'll also be a trusted leader. Number four, consistency. Good leaders have consistency. Trusted leaders consistently get results and have a proven track record. People trust leaders that persevere and stand up under pressure. Great leaders consistently choose to do the small things well. Saul, on the other hand, had a political career that did not have a good track record. His men fled from him. They didn't go with him. He hadn't been in power that long, but here's again what he could have done. He could have gone to Samuel and say, Samuel, help me on this. You've got rapport with the people. I don't. Let's go into battle. Would you come along with me? But he never did do that. And as a result, he didn't have the consistency for people to trust him. Lastly is courage. The last one we want to look at is courage. Leaders are trusted when they take risks and they stand in adversity for a greater good. 
You look around trusted leaders in the world, they all have this characteristic. They will take a stand, they'll risk for something greater, a greater cause, a greater good. And we can all do that. We can all take a stand. We can all be leaders. Saul, from the very beginning, showed a lack of courage. He hid amongst the baggage. Later, he admitted to Samuel that he was a people pleaser. And in his famous battle against Goliath, he and his men fled. David shows up, the young shepherd boy, and takes on Goliath. We know that story. And so, if we want to be good leaders, if we want to be a trusted leader, we need to see this characteristics characteristic of courage. Joshua 1, verse 8 and 9, or 6 to 9, last verses for us this morning here. It says, be strong and courageous. Now, notice how many times he's saying be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous, for you'll lead my people to possess all the land I swore to give their ancestors. He's telling Joshua, and Joshua's a good leader. He was a trusted leader, but he had this quality. He was strong, and he was courageous. People trust others when they show strength and courage, especially in the light of adversity. Now, you might be here this morning and you say, well, I don't know if this applies to me. That might apply to somebody else, and I'm not sure I need this message. Oh, yeah, you do. You, you need it. Don't let your mind drift somewhere and just say, oh, I don't really need this stuff, and I, I think I kind of know this already. God has an assignment for you like he did for Joshua. God has an assignment for you like he did for Saul. He tested Saul's heart, and he'll test your heart. What are you going to do? What's in your heart? Because I have an assignment for you, and it will take all these points to do that. You have a purpose. That was last month's message. You have a purpose. You're not here by accident. You're designed. There's something great on the inside of you that will take incredible leadership to do. And you may already know it, then let it refresh you. If you don't apply it today, then store it up and pull it out later on. Pull this book off the shelf later on. But we all need to stand up and lead. Our world needs more strong leaders than ever before. We can't wait for somebody else to do it. we got to step up and do it. We're, yes, amen. We are needed in our schools. We are needed in the marketplace, just like... Daniel was needed, just like Joseph was needed in the political arena. Don't wait for somebody else to do it. God does not have us in Canada at this hour to have good medical care system, good education, and coast until we retire. That's not what we're here for. Well, I came to Canada so my kids could have a good education. I could just kind of coast until I retire. Hey, God's got a new assignment for you. Uh Uh-uh, that is not the deal. We are, we're, we are designed for more than that. It is thy kingdom come, thy will be done. At the end of it, we say amen. Amen means so be it. Amen means action. May we not just pray the Lord's prayer and pray something, and then we just kind of, when we say amen, it doesn't mean goodbye. Okay, God, I... Uh, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Amen. Goodbye. See you tomorrow, God. Away I go. That's not it. That word amen is like the word action. When a movie producer, he goes, camera, light, action. And when you say amen, it's action. Thy kingdom come. Okay, well, what are we going to do to make his kingdom come? Or, or, or somebody else will do that. 
that we are the somebody that God's calling at this time. He wrote you into the story. He wrote you into the script, and you're not here by accident this morning, and you're not in Vancouver by accident today. You have a role to play, just like Saul had a role to play, and we'll need all five of these characteristics to step up and to be trusted. Again, it's the currency that we can lead and make a difference in our worlds. I think God's stirring us. He's, he gave marching orders. He tells Joshua, I command you, be strong and courageous. Jesus said, I have given you a commission. Go into all the world and preach this gospel to every nation. Well, that was for the 12 disciples. No, that's for all of us. We live in an hour and a time when we need to more than ever stand up. Follow our Lord with great courage. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to the Coastal Church Audio Podcast. We hope that today's message has inspired you to live a life fully devoted to following Christ. Be sure to check out our website for other ways to watch, listen, or share this message. For more information, go to coastalchurch.org.